I'm going to read to verse 19, the very first part of verse 19. Give close attention to the Word of God. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. For his shoulder, from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. <clears throat> so Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants, and arise, go, and search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. They passed through the land of Shaalim, but they were not there. They passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious or concerned for us. He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us what about what uh, tell us about our journey and on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, and let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to the servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, and answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he is coming to the city today. For the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city. And as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out towards them to go up to the high place. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be priest, prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you look, and we could read the whole chapter, but if you read from verse 1 to the very end of the chapter, and you left out verses 15, 16, and 17, it would read really smoothly. The story would read like a narrative 
all the history, all the facts, all these are ordinary details. You would just read it very smoothly, and you wouldn't have any clue how God figured into it. You would just be seeing events. You would see a man named Kish who lost some donkeys who sends his his son out with a servant maybe he's eating his oatmeal in the early morning and you need to go look for my donkeys and so they go to look for the donkeys step by step all these are ordinary events and so Saul goes and meets Samuel and in the end of the story Samuel is anointing Saul to be the king of Israel that's what it appears if you leave out verses 15 16 and 17 just historical information you would not see the Lord in any of it But if you want to know how God looks at this, if you want to see the theological perspective, you have to look at verse 15, 16, and 17. And in verses 15, 16, and 17, Samuel is given information that only God can give him. And Samuel is told by God, he says this, he says, Saul is coming to you. That's number one. The second thing he does, he says, I want you to anoint Saul to be the next king, the king of Israel. And then he tells him because God is a merciful God. We're going to see that at the very end of the sermon. God is a merciful God. So those are the three things that are there in verses 15, 16, and 17 that helps us understand how the Lord is part of all this ordinary business that's taking place. So this this evening, let's look at two points. Let's look at Saul The bulk of the sermon is just Saul, and then the end of the sermon, we're going to look at the Lord's providence. So let's look first at Saul, his physical appearance. He's the son of Kish. Kish was a Benjamite, and if you notice there as we were reading, uh, Kish has a great pedigree. Anytime you see the son of, the son of, the son of, you're, you're being told something about this man. He has a great pedigree. He's from a Benjamite family. Well, the Benjamite tribe was the smallest of all the tribes in Israel, but still he had a great pedigree. And Matthew Henry writes of him, he says, Kish was a man with a bold spirit, strong body, and wealth. He had a big estate. So this is who Saul comes from. This is Saul's father. Saul is described as impressive. You notice that he's impressive physically. The word Saul itself means ask for. Saul means ask for. Now think about it. What did the elders of Israel ask for? (laughs) They asked for a king that would be like all the other kings in all the other nations, and they got exactly what they asked for. They got a physical specimen. Verse 2 tells us that Saul was a choice and handsome man, and there was not one more handsome Then he, among the sons of Israel, from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now, everybody who had the King James Version knows it says what? He was head and shoulders above the rest, right? I see some people going right along with me. Head and shoulders above the rest. So if there was a Mr. Israel contest, this is the winner. If there was a Mr. USA contest, this is the guy who would win. Now, it's very interesting if he was the, he would be the center on Israel's basketball team if they had one back in those days. Um, This is an interesting note that this is the tallest Israelite ever mentioned in the Bible. Did you know that? Saul is the tallest person of Israel ever mentioned in the Bible. He's the only one identified in this way. And he was 
going to be like a king like the other nations. And back in those days, remember Goliath. Goliath, how, how tall? Ten feet tall. Goliath, ten feet tall. Who is he? He's the champion of the Philistines. And they wanted a champion. They wanted to be like the Philistines and other nations. They wanted a guy to fight their battles for them. Now, here's a question we need to ask ourselves. Is there anything wrong with being handsome? And is there anything wrong with being good-looking? Is there anything wrong with um, good-looking muscles? <laughs> oh, there's really not, is there? In fact, the Bible mentions many people who are handsome in form and appearance. Abraham tells us that Sarah was beautiful. Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Esther was lovely in form and features. Joseph was well-built and handsome. Moses was a beautiful child. David was a fine appearance. We remember those, what, what, ruddy appearance, you know, ruddy appearance. Handsome. Daniel and the three Hebrew boys, without defect and handsome. So nothing's wrong with being handsome and beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. But the question is, is there's, there's got to be something more than that, right? It just can't be outward. It's got to be something pretty on the inside. That's what we keep telling our kids. You've got to be more than just pretty on the outside, you know. And we, we need to think about that. It's a great relevance to think about what's on the inside, not just what's on the outside. Now, this is a loaded question, and I'm not going to try to preach a sermon on this, but I'm going to at least throw it out here. How do you choose a political leader? Oh, man, that's a loaded question. You know, I'm not about to tell you who to vote for, but I'll tell you this. You should vote for a person who has character, not just somebody who can speak smoothly, not just somebody who's a beautiful person, not just somebody who has great looks and is head and shoulders above the rest. You should choose a person who has character, and you may have to choose between two not Christian, not Christian people. Who are you going to choose? Well, you need to choose the person who's most biblical, who lines up to, the, to the, maybe the Ten Commandments as closely as you can look for them. Do they, are they for life? You know, one of the things we talk about with the men on Saturdays is we're not guaranteed a republic. We're not guaranteed the United States. We could lose what we have. But as long as we have the opportunity to vote, well, who do we vote for? Well, we vote for a person who has character. We vote for a person who desires freedom of worship, somebody who has respect for authority, somebody who has respect for life. We choose somebody who is most for purity. Maybe they're not so pure. Maybe some of them don't have very good manners, but we choose the people who have a, a track record for doing more right than the other person. You're choosing maybe the lesser between two evils. But look for character. How do you choose a spouse? Now, everybody likes to look at somebody who's attractive, right? We all do. But what's most important is what's underneath this appearance, what's in the heart of the person. If you go and read uh, the book of Ruth, you'll see that Boaz, when he talks about Ruth, you know what he talks about? He talks about her character. He says, you know, you have been serving your mother-in-law. You left Moab. You left the gods of Moab. You have found your home underneath the wings of the one true and living God. And you have served Naomi all these days. And when, when uh, Boaz talks about Ruth, all he can talk about is her character. Now, maybe she was really pretty. <laughs> I'm sure she might have been. But he talked about her character. And you and I, we must understand that Proverbs 31.30 tells us charm is deceptive. And beauty is fleeting. 
Oh, man, you know, isn't that true? I'm just not quite as handsome as I used to be, right? But a woman or a man who fears the Lord, that is what we need to look for. Look for the fear of God. Look for somebody. Yes, I had a woman used to say to me in the gym, Mr. Wheat, Mr. Wheat, you can't help who you're attracted to. I heard that every, every week. Mr. Wheat, can't help who you're attracted to. And one day I finally said, but Mrs. Sloan, you can help what you do when you're attracted to that person. You need to make sure that when you're attracted to a person, if you're looking for a spouse, that that person who's attractive is also has their attractiveness attached to the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart. Well, how do we choose a leader in the church? How do we choose a, a politician? How do we choose a spouse? How do we choose leaders in the church? Well, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Acts 6 tells us we need to look for a person who has character. The deacons in Acts 6 who were first chosen, they were to be men of full of the Spirit, men of wisdom, men who, could, who had ability to deal with people and who were servants. So when we choose a minister or an elder or a deacon, we're choosing somebody who has a big heart, a servant heart, a heart that loves God. Well, we've seen Saul's physical appearance. Let's look at his promising character. In verse 3, we're told that he has respect for his father. His father lost some donkeys. Now, many of us, we might think, well, that's just some donkeys, right? Well, think about donkeys like F Ford F-250. Think about donkeys as in Chevy. I don't want to leave the Chevy people out. 1500s and 2500s, right? I mean, if you lose animals back in those days, I think I heard that cat, uh, camels are like, sort of like very expensive cars, way up there. Maybe Land Rover. You know, that kind of thing. We're talking about some serious money. And so Kish asked Saul to go look for those donkeys. And Saul was probably 30 to 35 years old when his father asked him to do this. And he goes and he does it. He has respect for his father's wishes. He could have just blown him off. He's 30 years old. Who do you think you are? I live by my own lead right now. I do my own thing right now. I may be living close to you or living in your house, but I mean, hey, look, I'm, I'm the Lord of my life now. And that's not what he did. No, and he didn't even go out in the front door and look out the front and go out the back door and look out the back and come back and say, I did my duty. No, he says he went and he just kept on going. He looked. That says they, they passed through or they looked in this part of the land and then that part of the land. They passed through here. They passed through there. They looked and they looked and they looked. And it's to his credit that he did this. He could have said, shove off, Pops. He could have said, I do my own thing now, Pops. I want you to think about it, young people. As you grow older, you get more and more independent. You get, you get your car, you get your things, you do your own things. Your mom and dad come up to you and they say, would you do this? Would you do that? How do you respond? How do we respond? Do we get angry? Do we say, in this way, my time, <laughs> right? It's my time, right? Is that, is that what we do? Or do we say, you know, I need to go help my mom and my dad. Sometimes our parents will come to us and maybe uh, we don't have to listen to them once we're like, okay, we've got some 30-year-old folks back here. So mom and dad may come to you and they may give you some, some advice. Maybe you didn't ask for it. 
But you ought to listen to them and show them respect. You may not even do what they say, but you ought to show them the respect. Saul had respect for his father. Saul had concern for his father as well. You know, uh, it says that after they looked and they looked and they looked and they weren't finding, he began to talk to the servant and say, you know, my father's going to be concerned for me. <laughs> so we, we need to go back. My father's going to be concerned for me. And I think that's another lesson here for us. Young people, we've, we had this conversation with Celia. We couldn't find her the other night and she wasn't in bad trouble. But we, we kind of had to talk to her about the fact, hey, look, you know, we want you to, her phone died. So she couldn't text us. She couldn't call us. And so we were kind of on the manhunt looking for her. But why do we do this? Why do we, why do, we do this? Well, the reason we want our kids to check in with us is because we have concerns. And Saul was concerned about his father's concerns. I still am concerned about my mother. Are you concerned about your mother's concerns? She's 100 years old. Why should, you, why should that? You know, I, I call my mom on a regular basis. I appreciate my dad. In 2004, we found out Daddy had cancer. And um, his mother didn't die for two more years. And even though he was doing cancer treatments, every, every other day he went to see her. 35 miles over, 35 miles back. It was a good illustration for me. He took care of her concerns. Third, Saul's care in regard to social norms. Saul, when he was worried about what his father might be, his father's anxiety. The servant suggested, let's go see the man of God. And Saul says, hey, we don't have anything to give him. We've run out of food. We don't have any money. <laughs> what are we going to give him if we go to him? So Saul was concerned about, we might say, social norms. He wanted to make sure that the man got a gift. And back in those days, a traveler who appeared unannounced before a great man usually would give a gift to them. Finally, Saul's consultation with the man of God. It's a, it's a good thing that Saul wanted to go and meet with Samuel. That's a good thing. Think about what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 1 Samuel chapter 8. The elders, they went, and what did they do? Did they go and say, hey, uh, Eli, let's talk about praying and ask God to take. Can we take the ark of God into battle? Is that what they did? No, they just said, let's just take it into battle and we'll make God do what we want him to do. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the same thing happened. They didn't come and say, Samuel, let's pray about you anointing somebody for us to be the king. No, they came and they said, Samuel, anoint us a king. And so Saul and servant with him, they are going to go to the man of God and even, you know, in regard to some donkeys. And shouldn't that, as we said earlier, shouldn't that remind us that no matter is too small to bring to the Lord in prayer? Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths, who make your paths straight. So we look at Saul's physical appearance. We look at his promising character. Now we want to look at some of his character flaws, perceptible character flaws. His inability to find the donkeys. Did you notice that? In 1 Samuel 9 and in 1 Samuel 10... The author's trying to show us who he is. Who he is. Who is he? He does go out and look, but he doesn't find. That's, I think, a flaw. All of Israel's leaders were shepherds. Saul was not. 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Jesus, the great high priest, our shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, all shepherds. And here's a man who's not skilled in shepherding. Here's a man who doesn't know how to care for people. He's going to be a taker in the future, just not yet. He's going to be a taker and not a giver. We're going to learn that about him. Second, his belief that God's servants must be hired with cash. Now, some scholars argue that Saul's concern for social norms may mean that he believed that if you go to a man of God, you had to give him money like going and getting your oil changed. And I went up to get the oil changed, and I've never, I have never done this in my life. I pulled into the bay, and the guy said, stay in your car. I'm, I've got my Bible. I've got books. I'm going to go sit in there in the lobby, and I'm going to let them know. It's, not, you know, it's an hour-long thing, right? I'm sitting there. It takes 15 minutes. I'm not used to that. I pulled in there, and when it was all said and done, of course, the guys were underneath the car doing it under here, and they're trying to sell me 18 different more things to, you know, to make it go up to $1,000 to get the oil changed. And so when it's all said and done, you know, given the money, it was over. Service rendered, service, here's the payment. And some believe that Saul was going to look at the prophet like, okay, I need some information. Here's the money. You know, put the change in the slot and you get uh, the service. Now, why would Saul think like this? Now, here's the kicker. Why would Saul think like this? Because he was ignorant of Samuel. This is the biggest flaw of all. He was ignorant of the man of God. The servant said in verse 6, Behold, now there's a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. This is a flaw. This is a terrible flaw. Because why didn't Saul suggest that they go see the man of God? What's worse is this. This gives you the information you really need to make sure that you know I'm telling you the truth. Look at what it says there in verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. He doesn't know him. He's standing right in front of him and he doesn't know him. He ought to know him. He ought to know him. Why should he know him? Well, let's reverse back and think about why you should know him. Who's been traveling around all over Israel, itinerating? Who's been teaching the people how to repent and confess? Who's been teaching the people about uh, worshiping God? This Samuel has been the one who's doing it. He's been in the northern part of the country of Israel. He's been in the southern part of the country of Israel. He's been among the Benjamites, and Saul doesn't know him. Why not? Why not? He doesn't know him standing face to face with him. In Saul's complete ignorance of the man of God, we learn some terrible things. Kish, in raising Saul, had been focused on being bold and prominent and wealthy, but he hadn't focused on God. He hadn't focused on his own soul and had, has not brought his family to the Lord. Where was Kish when, Saul, when Samuel was preaching repentance? Where was he? Saul was out. I mean, Samuel's out there. And Saul and Kish are not in prison. 
Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Kish had focused on the world. He'd focused on the cares of the world. He focused on F-350s. And he forgot about God, and he forgot about God needing to save the souls of his children. He had no knowledge of God. He had no knowledge of repentance. He had no knowledge of worship. This is a tragic thing. And so Saul, though promising as he is, he does not know the man of God. And remember, as we go through these Old Testament passages, not to know the man of God is not to know God himself. Samuel is the word of God in those days. And not to know the man who brings the word of God is not to know the word of God yourself. So Saul is promising, and yet he does not know the Lord. Samuel was plotting. Samuel was all around. And Saul and Kish were not in prison, but they were not to be found when it came to know the man of God, Samuel. So I'm going to talk to the parents. God challenges parents not to be a Kish. Don't be a Kish, Mom and Dad. Children, you are not to be a Saul, but parents, you're not to be Kish. What's Kish doing? Kish is out there thinking about his standing. He's thinking about his wealth. He's thinking about what he owns. He's thinking about his cars. He's thinking about his F-350s. He's thinking about his Land Rovers, but he's not thinking about God. He's not thinking about raising his children before the Lord. He's not thinking about the sacrifice. He's not thinking about these things because they were were not important to him. Have you ever asked yourself, I'm, have you ever said to yourself, I'm such a kish? <laughs> Probably not. But are you acting like a kish? Are you so busy taking a child from one place to the next, one game to the next, one class to the next, buying the clothes that they need, all the things, these are important things, but what's most important? Am I being kish? Young people, are you being a, such a Saul? Saul, you know, I had this friend in the eighth grade. Never forget it. We went to uh, Six Flags, and this is what he did all the way. <laughs> all the way. He'd pull his comb out, and he'd go. And he'd look at the mirror. He had a mirror with him. I was going, what is wrong with you, man? you carrying a mirror and a comb. Uh, okay, okay, it's funny. And, you know, we were, but is that all that there is? Saul didn't know the Word of God. Saul didn't know these important things. And so I'm going to ask my kids. I'm going to ask Lyndall. I'm going to ask the kids. You think about your grandkids. What are you doing with your time? Mom and Dad sit down. They teach you the catechism. Mom and Dad sit down and do family worship time with you. Are you submitting to the Lord? I remember when I was 21 years old, all of a sudden I came face to face with the fact. I said, you know, I'm not doing any of this stuff. I've been taught all of it. Man, it was really, I was going, you know, mom and dad, look at my life. Mom and dad, look at my life. Look at all this. And I'm finally going, you know, my mom and dad had me in church, and this guy did teach me how to pray. And this guy over here, he taught me how to read the Bible. And now I had to realize that I need to go apply what I'd been taught. Saul later on is unwilling to submit to the man of God, Samuel, when he tells him what to do. And then when he finally says he's wrong, he still wants to be recognized. We, we need to be careful who we want to be recognized by. 
He wants to be recognized in front of the people. I want you to be recognized before God. Well, last, let's end with the Lord's providence. This is a good, this is a good ending. God's providence is a mysterious thing, and God's at work in our lives to accomplish His purposes for His own glory and for our good. It is mysterious because God works into your lives like a a master weaver. He works in your life. He works upon and with and against things in your life. He even works through our sinful choices. You go and you read verses 15, 16, and 17, and you need to be reminded that, that God is sending Saul to Samuel. God is going to tell Samuel to anoint Saul. And why is He going to do that? Because He's merciful. But, but Pastor Mark, I thought that choosing Saul was wrong. It was. But God's merciful. <laughs> this is unbelievable. So here, the people, God says, Samuel says, oh, he's so upset that they've chosen this, this, uh, this man. They want a king instead of the invisible God. And Saul says, they haven't rejected you. They rejected me. And then God says, I'm going to give them Saul. But Saul, listen to me, he's not going to be a 24-hour throw-up virus. You with me? He's not immediately going to be a taker. God is going to use Saul to save his people from the Philistines because he's heard them pray for deliverance. So he's going to use Saul. There's going to be a day where Saul is anointed to be the king because God's merciful. As you consider God's providence, you probably wake up every day and you go through the motions. And you need to think on a regular basis that every day, everything that happened yesterday was according to God's wisdom, God's holy wisdom, His power. He ordained everything that happened yesterday. He ordained that you worship this morning. He ordained that you are here tonight. Was Saul's day just a chance? That day we've read about and studied, was it just a day of chance? Not a chance. Did Kish, did his donkeys, did they go missing by chance? Not a chance. Did God send Saul out with a servant to look for those donkeys by chance? Did, did they find Samuel by chance? Did God cause Samuel to anoint Saul by chance? No, not a chance. God ordained every bit of it. And today, as you and I go through the rest of our day, when we, and we wake up tomorrow, God ordained all of it. You and I, we don't have verses 15, 16, and 17 to carry around with us telling us exactly what's going to happen the next day. Samuel, this is what's going to happen. I don't have that. You don't have that. But you know, this is a great thought. Take this to the bank. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired for our edification. This is for us. So even though you don't have 15, 16, and 17, you know that there's a God behind every part of your life, ordaining every part of your life. And Romans 8, 28 tells us that God's at work in all things, working all things together for the good of those who love Him. Proverbs 16, 9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. You and I, we can look back, and sometimes we can look back maybe, maybe 20 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, and you can see some steps where God orchestrated, and you can kind of see it, but you don't, you don't know all of it. But He does. He does. 
What we need to do is make sure that we're dialed in with God's revealed will and obey it as we think through the fact that God is ordaining our steps. Now let me read Proverbs, I mean, uh, 1 Samuel verses 9, 16, and 17 one more time and listen carefully. About this time tomorrow, Samuel, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be, the prince, be prince over my people. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cries come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold the man of whom I have spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. But I thought those people chose a king that they shouldn't have. <laughs> they did. They did. And yet God still calls on my people. And God still chooses to work in their lives and give them uh, pity and mercy and save them from their enemies. Yes, we have to face the fact that Saul will be a taker and Saul will make them sick to their stomach later. But at the end, one of the things Evan and I was talking about on the way over here, he had to write a paper on David lamenting Saul and his death. But one of the things that he does when he laments is he talks about Saul being the deliverer of Israel from the Philistines. And that's true. God was merciful. The Lord's compassionate providence. I want you to think about the cross and we end. In Acts 2.23, who did this? Who delivered him over? Who delivered Jesus over? Well, those wicked men handed him over to the Romans and they crucified him. But God says that I handed my own son over to these wicked men according to my own set purpose and foreknowledge that I might pour out my mercy and pity on my people. Titus 3.5 says, He has saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because... He is merciful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your word tonight. Thank you for each one of these people here today. Help us to remember that you, many, the many lessons we learned from studying about Saul and that at the same time, oh, wow, how you are so tender and kind and merciful in your providence. How you are always working all things together for the good of each one of us who love you. And so, Father, tonight as we leave, help us to be melted in our hearts over your kindness and over your wisdom. Help us to hold fast to your truth and walk according uh, to your word. And help us enjoy our fellowship now as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen.